I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 13 to 44 this morning. Have you ever spoken with someone about spiritual things and they ask you a question, but they really are not interested in the answer? Yeah, it happens a lot. I had that happen not uh, too long ago. You know, some people pose questions and they really, um, they really do want to know the answer. They're trying, they're wrestling and they want to get to the, the bottom of something. Others pose questions with an agenda. It's really a statement. <clears throat> they have no, no interest in hearing the truth. Well, in today's lesson, we're going to see a number of religious leaders challenge Jesus with questions. And in almost all cases, they're really not interested in the answers. They're not interested in the truth, but only in trapping him. There is one exception that we'll see today. Well, as I was preparing, I, I got interested in uh, looking kind of the big picture of how the Gospels cover the Passion Week. So we're, you know, Eric mentioned last week, he put up the list of major events going on in the, the last week of our Lord's earthly life called Passion Week. And you see it here up on the screen according to the day in which it, it happened. And just for those interested, I tend to be interested in these kind of things. This is how Matthew, if you can see the purple, that's how Matthew covers those, those days and those events in terms of the number of verses. So what day does Matthew cover the most? Tuesday, right? Like more than double of any other day. Mark, the book that we're covering, also covers Tuesday more than any other day, but also Friday uh, obviously is a big day as well. Luke covers Tuesday and Friday about the same. John, interestingly, doesn't cover Tuesday at all. But look at how he covers Thursday. <clears throat> all the things happening in the Garden of Gethsemane, Upper Room Discourse, a uh, lot, lot of things there. And he covers the, uh, Sunday, the resurrection, more than, than any other gospel account. If you put all those together... What day is covered more than any other day? Tuesday, right? Uh, according across all those gospel accounts. Well, you are here. <laughs> You're on Tuesday. That's where we're studying. And it's Christ's response to his enemies. Now, the theme of this section is Jesus stunningly answered all challenges from religious leaders. He gave witness to the truth and himself while also confronting and warning against their ungodly motives, their false teachings, and their actions. So big picture, we're going to be looking at a number of different uh, encounters today, but big picture, this is what's, what's happening. We begin with <clears throat> the question of the Pharisees and Herodians regarding paying taxes, beginning in verse 13. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. Now, who is they? Back in chapter 11, 
Jesus had challenged a group from the Sanhedrin and uh, according to his response. And in Matthew's account, it says then, following that encounter, the Pharisees went and plotted together. So they've gone back and, and as a group they've plotted and they sent their disciples along with the Herodians. So they, they sent some, the, some of their younger disciples to go along with the Herodians to, to then ask Jesus this particular question. As a reminder, the Pharisees are, are legalistic, um, religious, ultra-conservatives. So if you think about them as a group, that's who they are. Jesus threatened their false religious system and their authority. They were also very jealous of Jesus' popularity. The Herodians, we don't hear a lot of them. We actually don't know a lot. But they were supporters of Herod Antipas, the, the ruling Roman official there. They were not seriously religious. So they're, they're really secular. They were influential progressives who embraced Greek culture over Jewish culture. And they saw Jesus as a threat to their desired way of life. Very different groups that normally didn't see eye to eye. But in they were united in their opposition to Jesus. So they joined forces to then go and confront Jesus with this question. And then we see with flattery, they asked Jesus about paying taxes to Caesar, verse 14. They came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and you defer to no one, for you are not, <clears throat> not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Wow. Notice the flattery. They're pouring it on. They speak about his character, his teaching, but they don't believe that for one second. It's all designed to get an opening, to present themselves in front of the people like they're, they're complimenting, complimentary toward Jesus and uh, they, they just want him to give an honest answer to this question. And then it says, they ask, is it lawful to pay a toll poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? Well, that's a very loaded question, right? And it's designed to trap Jesus. They want a yes or no answer. And they're thinking if he answers yes, what's going to happen? The people will turn on Jesus because they're not happy about paying taxes to Rome if he says no uh, who's going to be unhappy the Romans and they will use that to then uh, turn on Jesus the question is should God's people pay taxes is it lawful they say is it lawful according to God's law what um, what Moses wrote in the Old Testament this Roman poll tax was a flat tax per person. Uh, there, there had been a Jewish rebellion led by a man, Ju Judas of Galilee, who's mentioned in the book of Acts, when this tax was implemented 24 years ago. And you may have heard of the Zealots. The Zealots came out of that, that movement, that rebellion. The premise behind the rebellion and the subsequent movement of the the zealots 
is that you can't have proper devotion to God and also support a pagan human government. That was their dilemma. And they, they said, you can't do that. And so they, they rebelled. Well, Jesus, ch- first of all, challenges them and their hypocrisy in his response. Continuing verse 15. But he, Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, why are you testing me? Jesus let them know he's not fooled by anyone. He knows they are hypocrites. And in fact, in Matthew's parallel account, uh, Matthew even captures that he calls them hypocrites. He wasn't just thinking it. He called them hypocrites. And then Jesus gives this amazing answer to their question. Continuing verse 15. Jesus said, bring me a denarius to look at. They brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, render to Caesar, Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. Now, the denarius coin likely had the image on it of the current Roman emperor Tiberius. And what Jesus is saying is he's saying, give to human government what is rightfully due them. That that word render that Jesus used, it's it's to pay back or to give back. And it implies a debt or something that is due, is rightfully due. There is a God-ordained function for human government. And God established there that there would be human government. And people are to pay their obligations in support of the government under which um, they live and, and of which they benefit. There are caveats in terms of, you know, a government can't command us to do things that are uh, forbidden and so on. But in general, we are to, um, to obey the government. And folks, if it applies to the Roman government, think of the, the Roman emperor who promoted uh, worship, right? Of the, they thought the emperor was, was deity, divine. Think of Nero who's coming later, you know, during the lives of the apostles, persecutes in a massive way the Christians. If this is true, that God's people are to pay taxes to the Roman government. This truth applies to all types of government. Regardless of how the money is spent, you as a, um, as a believer are held accountable to do what the government demands of you. You're not held accountable for all the, the uses that the government, in, uh, in terms of how they use what's given to them. Secondly, what Jesus is saying is give to God what is rightfully due him. God owns ultimately everything and we're to give him what what is due him. This message especially was targeted to the Herodians because their hope was not in God. They really were were not interested in the things of God. Their hope was placed in Rome and in Rome's leaders in Greek Roman lifestyle and all the 
the wealth and pursuits of that. So he's, he's directing to the Herodians who are there, you need to give to God what is due to him. Now, as I'll do in each of these lessons or these uh, encounters, I'm going to give some immediate lessons that, that come out from the text. First of all, Jesus perfectly sees through all hypocrisy. He did then and he does today. No one fools Jesus. And folks, you, you can be here, uh, you can fool a spouse, perhaps, although that's pretty hard to do. You can fool friends, you can fool people at church into presenting yourself a certain way. Just know, God knows exactly who you are. Secondly, honor and obey your government leaders and laws and pay your taxes. There are questions today by some as to whether Christians should financially support an unbiblical government. I mean, do we have an unbiblical government? They do things that clearly are contrary to God's, God's ways. Um, there's a, you know, it's, it's increasingly happen, happening. So should we pay our taxes? Jesus says, yes, you, you are to pay your, your taxes. It's incredibly clear. It was clear to the people who heard Jesus initially say this, who pay taxes to Rome, it's clear to us today. Regardless of how those taxes will be used, there is no excuse for a Christian to intentionally lie or cheat on their taxes. That is utterly dishonoring to the Lord. And third, honor, worship, serve, and obey God. God is do these things. And we are to... That is to be a focus of our life. You'll we'll actually see that in another encounter later on. But give to God the things that are rightfully due him. The next encounter, beginning in verse 18, is a question of the Sadducees regarding marriage and resurrection. So there were some Sadducees that came and asked Jesus about marriage in the resurrection. Verse 18. Some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus. Now, of the three main Jewish schools of thought, the Sadducees were the most wealthy, they were the most influential, the most aristocratic. Um, they really pursued you know, positions of power and being a, a ruler of the people. So the high priest, the chief priest, and most of the Sanhedrin were Sadducees. They considered only the law of Moses as authoritative. They ignored the rest of the Old Testament. Yet they saw nothing in Moses' writings to warrant a belief in the afterlife or a belief in resurrection or angels. Essentially, like others today, they embraced your best life now. right? Like live for the moment, get the most you can out of life because that's all there is. Continuing in verse 18, and the Sadducees began questioning him, Jesus, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. Now, this comes from 
Deuteronomy 25, 5 and 6. It's referred to as leveret marriages, which said that if a childless man dies and he leaves a widow, that his brother was to marry her. So this came from Moses. God had given this to Moses. And although it was not required, certainly it was highly encouraged. There were a lot of social pressures to, to make this happen. God put this law in place to preserve families during that time, tribal heritage, and as well as inheritances, to keep that within the, the family and, and tribe. Verse 20. There were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died, leaving no children. The second one married her and died, leaving behind no children. And the third likewise. And so all seven left no children. Last of all, the woman died also. In the resurrection, when, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. Now, when, if I was there, if my first question would be, what is wrong with this woman? I mean, this woman has put down seven husbands. <laughs> like, <laughs> what is her problem? <laughs> so clearly, they were trying to raise a dilemma associated with the resurrection to show that, man, there's all kind of problems with this idea of a resurrection. Let's, let's just think about this dilemma. So if this happened, how's this going to be handled in the resurrection? Right? They don't believe in the resurrection. The, the Sadducees who are asking the question. Well, Jesus responds, first of all, with the reasons that they, are, that they are mistaken about the resurrection. Verse 24. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are mistaken? That you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God? Jesus is making a statement uh, about the fact that they don't understand the scriptures or they have no clue about the power of God to really bring about the resurrection of people. MacArthur writes, their ignorance of the scriptures extended to their lack of understanding regarding the miracles God performed throughout the Old Testament. Such knowledge would have enabled them to believe in God's power to raise the dead. They just don't understand God or the scriptures that's why they don't believe in the resurrection and then he says there will be a resurrection but no marriage afterwards verse 25 jesus goes on for when they rise from the dead they neither marry nor are given in marriage but are like angels in heaven he doesn't say if they rise he says when they rise there will be a, a resurrection but Jesus says there will be no marriage in the afterlife marriage is God designed it intended it for the human race on earth for companionship for procreation there is no procreation in heaven in heaven everyone will have perfect companionship isn't that amazing to think about that I mean, we have all these barriers in relationships today, you know, different 
different dimensions of that. Even spouses can have, obviously, issues, right? In heaven, there will be perfect companionship with everyone. No sin, no false motives. Uh, Just amazing to think about. But there will be no marriage. Verse 26. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the burning bush how God spoke to him saying, and then he quotes Exodus 3.6, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Jesus says that the resurrection is proven in the writings of Moses where God stated that he is presently the God of the living patriarchs who had already died. I am their God. Jesus says, I am presently their God. I am, a- I am actively their God in a personal, relational sense. Even though they died, I am still their God. And Jesus uses this as a proof point that there is a resurrection. And then look at what Jesus says at the end of verse 27. You are greatly mistaken. Folks, can you imagine how many people are going to hear when they die and face Jesus, him say, you are greatly mistaken. So many people that that don't embrace what has been revealed in God's word to us. So uh, a, uh, a real condemnation here from Jesus about how, how wrong they are. There's some lessons here we can pull out. First of all, on, on the authority of Christ, we will all most certainly be resurrected. Every person here will be resurrected. Every person who has ever lived some to a, an everlasting life in fellowship with God, those that know Christ, and others resurrected to eternal damnation for those uh, who do not know Christ. Secondly, believe the scriptures, all of them. There are groups within, we'll say Christianity, who question the authority of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, what Moses wrote, whether Moses wrote them, and, and so on. Look, Jesus quoted this and said it, it is from the book of Moses. It is a direct affirmation that Moses wrote it, and it's authoritative. Jesus quoted it uh, as a proof point about the resurrection. So if Jesus has this view of the Old Testament, so should we. Third, don't be the one to whom Christ will one day say, you are greatly mistaken. We need to believe the testimony of Scripture, the testimony of Christ, and embrace it now. Well, I know I'm going through these at a flat, fast clip, but I have to. There's just so much to cover. You could take each one and do a, a lesson, but we're going to keep plugging along. Next, we come to an encounter where there's a question of a scribe regarding 
the greatest commandment. The greatest commandment. <clears throat> Verse 28. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognizing that he, Jesus, had answered them well. He asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? A scribe is an interpreter of the Mosaic law. They were teachers. They were those who had religious authority to, in, to give instruction. They were the experts in the Old Testament. The people looked to them um, you know, for insight and teaching. And finally, I mean, what do you make of this question? Is it a loaded question? It's not. It, finally, there's someone asks a question that's not, uh, not loaded. There's not some ulterior motive. Someone here who doesn't approach Jesus, uh, you know, hypocritically. The man heard Jesus responding and noticed what the gospel writer, he said that the man considered that Jesus was answering things well. So he, he thought highly of Jesus' answers. And so he, he wanted to ask his own questions. Rabbis had determined that there were some 613 commandments in the Pentateuch. And there were disagreements about which ones were the more weighty. And, and so they wrestled, like, what is the greatest commandment? And they would argue about that. And this scribe presents that dilemma to Jesus. Jesus responds... And first of all, says the greatest commandment is to love God with all of your being. Verse 29, Jesus answered, the foremost is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with, and with all your mind and with all your strength. Jesus is quoting from the Shema, which is in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. Uh, and that was a saying that devoted Jews would say every morning and every evening. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Um, and <clears throat> Jesus says that this commandment here, this is the greatest of all. To love God with all of your, your being, all dimensions of who you are. Attitudes, your what you think, what you do, what you say, everything about you is to love God. But Jesus then goes on to say there is, there's actually more from the law of Moses that he wants to point out. The second greatest commandment is to love others as yourself. Verse 31, the second is this. They didn't ask for two, they asked for one, but Jesus is going to give them this one anyway. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And Jesus here quotes from Leviticus 19.18. Um, this is not something he is adding to what had been revealed before. It's in the Old Testament. It, was, it actually comes from the law of Moses. But it was something glaringly overlooked by the current religious leaders. And we've seen that as they've interacted with Jesus and we'll see that more in Jesus' commentary on the kind of people that they are coming up. But they don't love people as they should. And Jesus is, I mean, he's pointing it out 
for the hearers then, the religious leaders then, but obviously for us as well. This love of people, uh, we are to do it because God commands it. If we love God, then we are to do what he commands. But loving people also flows from his character. MacArthur writes, it prompts believers to measure their love for others by what they wish for themselves. We wish a lot of things for ourselves, a lot of good things. What we're going to eat, providing for ourselves, we set goals for ourselves, um, and so on. Do we do that for other people? Do we have that same mindset in how we, we wish to benefit and provide for other people? Well, the scribe genuinely affirmed what Jesus said. Verse 32, the scribe said to him, right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one and there is no one else besides him. And to love him with all the heart and and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. What do you make of that? That's like a really good response. He, he gets it. Now you wonder, what about all the other friends he has there, the scribes? They're probably thinking, shut up. Don't say that. Don't affirm. You know, don't embrace what he's saying. But this particular scribe shows that he understood that the moral elements of the law the Mosaic law were more important than the ceremonial. He got it. That was the heart of God. Those moral elements are, are far more important than the religious rituals. Well, Jesus then responds and tells the man that he is not far from the kingdom of God. Verse 34, when Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. Interesting. He said, Jesus says, you are what? Not far. That's different from you are in the kingdom. He says, you are not far from the kingdom. Now, it's interesting to, we don't know what happened to this scribe, but is, it is interesting to imagine if he if he were at this point and was catching on to the character of God as seen in the law of God in the Old Testament, he is having this favorable response and listening to Jesus. Maybe, just maybe, he came to embrace Christ. You think about the death of Christ and what went on just a few days later, the resurrection of Christ, and how that changed everything. For, for people, including Jesus' brothers, right? Folks, j maybe, just maybe, we will see this scribe in heaven. Wouldn't it be neat to, to go up to the, a guy in, in heaven and he's, he says, I was that scribe. Let me tell you what happened after this particular encounter. It's neat to think about. Well, there are some lessons we can pull out. Obviously, um, the greatest commandment given to you is to love God with all of your being. And that, that's just taken directly from what Jesus said. The question is, how are you doing? 
would an objective assessment of your life reflect that you you demonstrate a very deep and growing love of God that it, it permeates all of your being it drives what you do it drives your priorities it drives your affections it drives your behavior both in private and with others it is reflected in your relationship to the church and God's people your your resources everything how are you doing secondly the next greatest commandment is to love other people similar to how you love yourself we all love ourselves we may get, get down on ourselves and so on but deep down we all love and care for ourselves the question is how do you love and care for other people how are you doing again how would an objective assessment look of your life in terms of do you do you do things that demonstrate a love of people or is most everything about your life demonstrating a love of self and a pursuit of the things that you want the things that promote you the things things that are of interest and of benefit to you or are you serving and loving other people folks you can put everything else aside these are the two greatest commandments that we have to love God with all of our being and to love people the same way we love ourselves if you do these two things everything else falls into place this next encounter is a question that Jesus poses regarding the Christ the Messiah as the son of David Jesus asked this there's now a large crowd and that comes out in the text he's he's on the temple mount by the way all of these encounters we believe are there on the temple mount on this tuesday there's a large crowd that's been listening to all of this interaction between jesus and the religious leaders and jesus now turns he's not talking to the religious leaders but he's he's asking a, a question clearly it's in front of the religious leaders but look at verse 35. And Jesus began to say, as he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies beneath your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? Now, the term Christ, we're familiar with that, but that, that name, that term, is a <coughs> translation of the Old Testament word, Hebrew word for Messiah. So Christ just really means Messiah. Now, references to the son of David, that was a common messianic title. Everyone knew that. The scribes used that term in referencing, referring to the Messiah. And they clearly thought, the scribes thought, and they taught the people that Messiah would simply be a man. He would be a descendant of David, have these great capabilities to come and deliver the Jewish people. And so Jesus is saying, how can the Christ be both David's Lord 
as well as a son of David, a descendant of David. This quote that Jesus is referring to is this messianic psalm, Psalm 110, verse 1, which reads that David wrote, The Lord, and Lord there is Yahweh. That's a reference to God's covenant name. It's a reference to God the Father. So God the Father says to my Lord, to David's Lord, Lord here is a different word, and it's used in the sense of the Lord God, reflecting his authority. And then he says, sit at my right hand. So God the Father is saying to David's Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So they knew that's a clear reference to the Messiah. God the Father is saying to David's Lord, who is Messiah, to, to do this. You have two members of the Trinity speaking to one another here. God the Father saying to God the Son, Messiah, sit at my right hand. And David, especially as the king of Israel, would not call one of his descendants, who would simply be a human, a man, he wouldn't call him Lord. And that's embedded in Jesus' question here. The answer is that the Christ will be fully human as a descendant of David, but he will also be fully divine as the Son of God. MacArthur says Jesus was proclaiming the Messiah's deity and thus his own. That was clearly implied in what Jesus is saying here. Verse 37 continues, and the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. The people enjoyed everything that Jesus said. It was so powerful and amazing. Well, some key lessons here. First of all, Jesus affirmed the method of divine inspiration in the writings of Scripture, or the writing of Scripture. Verse 36 says, David himself said in the Holy Spirit, Jesus is saying what David wrote in Psalm 110 was from the Holy Spirit. It was divine revelation written down through a human agent, through David, which is the whole model of how all of Scripture is inspired. It comes from the Holy Spirit through a human agent who writes it down. That's the testimony of Jesus, and it should be our belief and what we embrace as well. Secondly, Jesus affirmed both his humanity as son of David and his deity as son of God. It, that's, he's saying it here. The only way to resolve this dilemma that he poses as a question to resolve what the Holy Spirit revealed to David is to affirm that the Messiah is both fully human as well as divine, fully divine. And third, even ironically, as we just came out of service and Tom talked about this views of the Trinity and the deity of Christ, a person must believe in the deity of Christ or else they do not know him. Anyone who espouses that Jesus was a created being is a heretic. That is a damning belief. Uh, they have created a Jesus that is different from the Jesus of the Bible. Next, beginning in verse 
38, there's a warning by Jesus regarding the scribes and their hypocrisy. He issues this warning to beware of the scribes, verse 38. In his teaching, he was saying, beware of the scribes. Beware, it's a word that says, (laughs) vigilantly be careful. And it's present tense. It's the idea of continually be on the lookout. Not like once and done, but this is an ongoing thing to be on the lookout for. Beware of these people. <clears throat> and then Jesus describes them in a, several different ways here. First of all, as those who are consumed with being honored by others. Continuing verse 38. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. These, they wear these long robes and they're essentially saying, look how distinguished and elevated I am among the people, among everyone else. They like respectful greetings. They revere their titles and they revere people acknowledging their titles and expressing honor to them in front of others. They like the chief seats in the synagogues places that are the most comfortable they certainly don't want to stand they want to sit and they they like the places of honor at banquets uh, the most the best positions the the place where people will think the highest of them they think they deserve the best in everything jesus says beware of people like this Secondly, they devour the possessions of the most vulnerable. Verse 40, who devour widows' houses. Make a mental note of this verse because we're going to be coming back to it um, soon. That word devour, it means to squander. If you you think of a, a gluttonous person who just consumes food just rapidly, that's the, the idea of this word devour. That's what scribes do to widows' houses. MacArthur writes, Scribes often served as estate planners for widows, which gave them the opportunity to convince distraught widows that they would be serving God by supporting the temple or the scribe's own holy work. In either case, the scribe benefited monetarily and effectively robbed the widow of her husband's legacy to her. So you think of these vulnerable widows and who are approached by the scribes and they tell them, if you really want to honor God, do the right thing, be blessed of God, give away your money. Give me your money. Give your money to the temple and, and all of that, even to the point of taking their houses, the contents of the houses and the houses themselves. That's how bad the religious leaders were. It goes on, Jesus says they pretend to be spiritual with their long prayers, verse 40, and for appearances sake, offer long prayers. They just want to be highly regarded. They like to do things in public that that cause the people to esteem them highly. That's why they offer these long prayers. 
Jesus then declares that they will receive greater judgment of guilt. At the end of verse 40, these will receive greater condemnation. They have been given more truth. They've had an opportunity to embrace that truth. And as Luke 12, 48 says, to whom much is given, what? Much is required. They were given much. They have studied God's word and have not embraced it. They are far from the heart of God and how they behave and how they think. Well, some key lessons here. <clears throat> First of all, ensure you are not like the self-exalting, honor-seeking, heartless scribes. And folks, religious people can be like this. The scribes were religious. Um, and our, our flesh draws us to this kind of behavior, to exalt ourselves. You know, I, the older I get, you know, maybe those of you who are older as well, you, you look back and do you just cringe? It, I can't believe I acted like that. I can't believe I thought like that. Maybe for decades. And I think that's part of just growing in Christ. We, we look back and you just shake your head. Um, so this doesn't mean that this doesn't condemn everyone who struggles with this. The issue is, is it your a settled disposition of where you are? People stay in this state like forever. Christians grow out of it. We're no longer held bondage to our flesh and we we grow in our sanctification and being more like Christ and putting things off and putting things on. So, I'm, you know, thank the Lord. I'm I know I'm not what I as Tom says, I know I'm not what I should be, but thank the Lord. I'm not what I used to be. Right. That's the testimony of every believer. But you need to look at your life and are you in this constant state of Everything's about you. And, and you're prideful and arrogant, seeking your own honor. You love yourself and really don't love other people. If that's you, you need to fall on your knees before the Lord and confess that. Because how are followers of Christ described in the New Testament? Servants. Slaves. Slaves who are busy pleasing their master doing the work that pleases their master and serving others. That's the direction and should be the heart of believers. Secondly, be on guard against the influence of such people as these scribes. There's a lot of people with Christian labels, present themselves as religious, Bible-believing, whatever. They are heartless. Stay away. Stay far away from those kind of people. They're just like the scribes. Well, the third and final encounter in our section today is the observation of Jesus regarding a widow who gave everything. Very familiar story. <clears throat> in verse 41, Jesus observes people putting money into the temple treasury. It says, verse 41, And he sat down opposite the treasury 
and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large sums. So he observes that the wealthy people, man, they were putting a lot of money into the temple treasury. Okay. Well, the next thing is uh, he observes that a poor widow put in two copper coins. Verse 42, a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. Now, this story is often called the widow's what? Mite. What's a mite? It's not a bug. <laughs> there is a bug called a mite. But a mite is just a small offering. It's a term for a small offering which might relate to small coin. And actually, it originates from the King James, but it's plural there, the widow's mites. She put in two mites, I, I believe it is. Anyway, current translations just use the term for coin here, but they're small copper coins. But the amount is just minuscule monetarily. It's a very small offering. And then Jesus comments that the widow put in more than the others because it was all that she had to live on, live on. Verse 43, calling his disciples to him. Notice he's he's drawing his disciples in to make to add this commentary. Uh, related to the observation, he said to them, truly, I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty. Because, because she out of her poverty put in all she owned, all she had to live on. <laughs> but what does Jesus mean when he, he says that she put in more? It, it was more proportionally. Her sacrifice was more. It's certainly from a monetary value it was an in, really an insignificant amount but proportionally to what she possessed it it was a large gift from her she gave out of her not out of her abundance but jesus said out of her poverty this was a woman in poverty and she is giving away everything all that she owned all that she had to live on and the sense there is she couldn't eat another meal. She didn't have money to buy one more meal. She would have to either earn the money or someone would have to give it to her. That's the extent of what she gave. Everything. She had nothing left to live on. So when we, th we think about the lesson from this story, what is Jesus' point? What is Jesus's point? Is it that this widow presented an illustration of true sacrificial giving, which others should follow? And I'm putting a question mark there. Because that is the traditional view. Um, it's it's possible that this might be the the point that Jesus is making but it is very problematic. Very problematic. Um, Jesus doesn't commend her, does he? he? He's just making an observation. Does he 
does he tell his disciples to go and do likewise? And this is the way you are to teach people to give. Scripture nowhere commands us to give away everything we have to live on. There are certainly many commands concerning the care of widows that we are to provide for them. That's the heart of God. That goes all the way back to the time of Moses. Widows are to always be cared for. But there's, there's another problem with this traditional view. By the way, this interpretation, I mean, it goes all the way back. So in a sense, it carries weight in church history. I mean, you go back to, through Calvin and so on. I mean, everyone has used this story as a message of sacrificial giving. That, you know, we should all be like this poor widow. But let me show you another problem. And the problem is the context. So I think visually, you've, if you've been in the class for a while, you know this. So Mark and Luke are the two accounts that cover this, this story of the widow's gift. They each have four verses that, that cover this particular story. Now, what's the story that just preceded this? The warning against the scribes. Right. And the the way the scribes deal with people that's covered in both Mark and Luke. Exactly the the same, the same number of verses. What is it that follows what's coming up next? You'll see this next week. It's the Olivet Discourse that talks about the destruction of Jerusalem that's coming. Jesus will be telling his disciples, I'm bringing judgment on this place. I'm bringing destruction and then it, and, and the sense is because of all the, the evil things going on and the fact that these people are rejecting Messiah, rejecting all that God has taught. I'm bringing destruction, then it transitions and goes into Christ's return and, and so on. But again, what follows this story, judgment, destruction. And at the heart of that is this whole religious system that is so dishonoring to the Lord. Well, let's pull in Matthew's account because in Matthew's account, and this is shown proportionally in terms of the amount of coverage in a number of verses, Matthew covers the Olivet Discourse um, a, you know, much more, actually more than double the other two or, or any one of Mark or, or Luke. So it, there's a lot in Matthew that's covering this period of judgment, destruction, and Christ's return. But in addition, look at this. In Matthew's account, he covers the seven woes against the scribes and Pharisees. That's not covered in the same level of detail as Mark in Mark and Luke. So you have this massive thing that Jesus was saying attacking and condemning all of the practices of these religious leaders. Only a small portion of which is captured in Mark and Luke. So if you were to merge together the full gospel account, put them together, what surrounds this story of the widow's gift? I mean, it's condemnation of the behavior of these religious leaders massive con condemnation there 
This widow, the story of the widow's gift, it's just sandwiched in between all of this discourse. And so we, we have to take into account the context that this story is given when, and, and let that hermeneutic help us come to a conclusion and a proper interpretation. Let me show you how even good Bible scholars have struggled with this. How many of you have a MacArthur Study Bible? Yeah, a lot. We've all loved and benefited from John MacArthur's ministry. This may be what is in your study note on Mark 12, 44, on the phrase, all she had to live on. In the study notes, it says this meant she would not be allowed to eat until she earned more. The widow exemplified true sacrificial giving. So in 1997, when the first MacArthur Study Bible came out, that's the interpretation that the Study Bible directed us to, which is the traditional view. If you have the 20th edition of the MacArthur Study Bible, which I, I think only came out for New King James, it doesn't seem to be available. On, I guess they worked something out with the publisher. But anyway, there were updated study notes. Take a look at the difference. That footnote now says the religious system at the temple was thoroughly corrupt. It was literally devouring widows' houses. Compare verse 40, where Jesus had just said in the story before this, these scribes devour widows' houses. So even someone like a MacArthur that has struggled, and it, after he studied this passage in more detail, and it's reflected in his uh, official commentary on the book uh, he came to a different conclusion so people have struggled with that so the other lesson the other way to interpret this is this serves as, a, as an illustration of the corrupt religious system that took advantage of the most vulnerable rather than taking care of them and that's a new view like new in our lifetime view. And I think MacArthur might have been the first one to espouse it, but it is a more likely interpretation. It's almost like Jesus did all of these woes, and then we saw the, well, our text in Mark about the, the nature and behavior of scribes, and then he's saying, Exhibit A, look over there at that widow, what's happening. The religious system is allowing her to put in all the money she has in hopes of some spiritual benefit, whatever, as opposed to the religious leaders taking care of her. That's how corrupt things have become. Well, I know that's a lot, but um, we could spend a lot of time on each one of those stories, but hopefully that was was helpful let's pray father thank you for the authority and clarity in which you spoke then and in which you speak now help us as those of those who love you who follow you to embrace your word and <coughs> apply these truths to reflect on our own hearts and motives to ensure that we are pursuing a life that is growing into conformity to the image of our Lord. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.